Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala Rasulillah. Dear brothers and sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to another Ilm Feed podcast episode. Today, Alhamdulillah, I have with me all the way from California, Ustava Muslima Permel. Uh, Ustava is a uh, Muslim chaplain and scholar. She graduated from the University of California, San Diego, with a double major in religious studies and Middle Eastern studies. As an undergraduate, she served at varying leadership roles for the Muslim Student Association. She completed the bachelor's program in Sharia from Al-Azhar University in Cairo, and also completed graduate work at the American University in Cairo in Islamic studies. She is co-founder and scholar-in-residence at Safa Center for Research and Education. So, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Stada. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's an honor to be here with you. Alhamdulillah. You know, I've been uh, looking at some of your talks online and over the years I've heard about you, you know, mashallah. And I always wanted to connect with, uh, with yourself and you know, with my sisters in America. So Alhamdulillah, we've got this opportunity um, today to do that. The How are things in California? Uh, Alhamdulillah, likewise, the work that you do is uh, very impactful and Alhamdulillah, um, subhanAllah. We actually, I used to always wonder who, who, who's behind Alhamdulillah, who's behind Alhamdulillah, mm-hmm. and subhanAllah, so wonderful to meet you, in, in, even if it's virtually, and to, and to meet Alhamdulillah, the sister behind the um, this this project, this wonderful community project, mashallah. Alhamdulillah, we are a, we are a team of people, and uh, mashallah, you know, lots of talented people involved behind the scenes. So um, you know, I, I feel honoured to be part of you know this project because you know we try to bring positive inspiration to Muslims um, mm-hmm. all around the world. So jazakallah khairan. Uh, I'm glad that you um, that you've also benefited and noticed our work Alhamdulillah. Um, it's interesting that you know in the current climate of a pandemic how the programs that are being offered virtually and over the internet have now become so much more significant and so mm-hmm. the work of um, the work of Feed you know is uh, is truly a, a blessing for our community and I think that that's something that um, Again, before the pandemic, it, it was there and it was beneficial. But like during the time, the time that people can't actually gather, it's these types of projects that are really helping the community's, uh, you know, heartbeat, collective heartbeat, keep pumping, you know, in the right direction. Inshallah. Um, our the organization actually I currently work for is the Majlis. So um, my husband and I founded a community institution. Uh, a, a, I would call it like a com- uh, a community space and more, I guess we could, the best words to describe it would be an intentional community third space project. Um, but the the Majlis literally means like a place to sit so people can sit really close together and learn and grow and, you know, have good companionship and all of that. And subhanAllah, after the pandemic started, you know, we, we did, we were completely puzzled because the whole idea was local, sit next to each other, know each other, you know, 
intimately as a community, um, support each other as brothers and sisters in person, have live relationships. And it was almost anti-social media, you know, in the sense of, or um, it was really like, go back to the way things used to be, where people would physically go out to a program and drop their kids off at the babysitting. And, you know, that was really emphasizing that and the pandemic hit. And we had to, we had to overnight transition everything virtually. Um, yes. and that, was a, that was a, that was a big, just a uh, challenge for us, but we realized we couldn't resist. Like this is now the way that we have to be both local and global. Um, it's a lesson we learned the hard way, alhamdulillah. So, subhanAllah, yeah, I think everyone is having to adapt, right? Mm -hmm. Like whatever plans anyone had, um, you know, they've had to rethink them. Uh, but I've seen people being quite inventive and quite uh, like um, innovative, you know, in their approaches to, I guess, overcoming the challenges of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, Sada, tell us uh, also in California, like in general, how has it been like... Uh, the effects of the pandemic and you know what's the current situation are you still in a lockdown yeah we're actually <clears throat> we went back to the most restrictive um phase of the lockdown so we're currently in purple like there's oh. different colors and purple's the most severe and so that means that's the stay at home order which 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 is how the lockdown started and then it eased off it transitioned and restaurants were open again and people could eat outside um, you know, and now it's the opposite where uh, things that were even sl slightly, you know, accessible uh, are shut down again. And um, so I want to say that the numbers have, are currently the highest they've ever been um, in terms of the numbers of people who are testing positive with COVID-19. And uh, the, the ICUs are, are almost at full capacity. So uh, it's, uh, in that sense, it's, it is worse than actually, I mean, that they're describing in terms of numbers and percentages. And on top of that, people have COVID fatigue. So as we're in the beginning, people were ready to try their best. At this point, a lot of people are um, are, are, are sort of easing off or um, I wanna say they're tired <laughs> of keeping masks yeah. on, things like that. So it's, uh, um, you know, it's, a, it's back, it, the next three weeks are expected to be probably one of the worst, I mean, as according to the CDC, the one of the worst health um, situations in America. And in particular, California is, oh. is bigger. I mean, it, it hits California in a way that's more severe than maybe other parts of the country because of the major metropolitan cities, um, mm -hmm. high concentrations of people in small areas. Um, even though it's a vast, huge state, it's like where the city is, you know, like if you go to LA, for example, LA is just really um, on a whole nother level of lockdown. I think they even have curfew um, and they have like ages and of people that can be out. So it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 mm -hmm. it's on, <laughs> it is on in, in Southern California. Cause we, we just came out of a second lockdown and um, it was a lighter kind of lockdown. So mm -hmm. schools were still open, you know, uh, educational settings were still open, but and you could go and get a takeaway, for example, but uh, restaurants and sitting together was not um, was not allowed. And and like you said, I think I don't know if it's COVID fatigue or if people are just confused with the rules now. You know, mm -hmm. uh, but there's something like that he happening here as well. 
So Salva, I wanted to um, uh, ask you because you were a chaplain for, you know, universities, and I guess that gave you um, a unique insight into what's going on in universities and with students. Um, I guess currently a lot of students are studying from home. A lot of universities have just gone online, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I'm sure, you know, soon, inshallah, when things start getting back to normal, campuses are going to start opening up. Um, I know my own campus has opened up a little bit, like the library is open, you can book spaces and things like that, but oh, it's wow. not fully open. Oh, wow. um, and I wonder, like, in your experience and in your time as a chaplain, um, what would you say are the, like, the biggest issues that, or the most common issues that would come your way, you know, from students? Um, you know, what are the the biggest issues that students are facing? Mm -hmm. Alhamdulillah, one of the things that we were able to do in chaplaincy was uh, have uh, office hours with the students, like where they could book private one-on-one -on -one appointments. So uh, that was that was a really nice experience because a lot of times when you're doing like a public halaqa, the Q&A that you get in a big gathering is very different than allowing all those students to then sit with you one-on-one -on -one and hear them out one-on-one. -on -one. So um, on a one-on-one -on -one level, I think, interestingly, um, if, I could, if I could say like the top three things that students are dealing with, uh, the number one would be marriage and um, wanting to get married, but finding every kind of obstacle in their way as it relates to marriage, both for brothers and sisters. Um, so that's number one, definitely uh, mm. obstacles, confusion, lack of support, lack of direction, um, even uh, family sort of um, disapproval uh, of, of marriage um, while they're, or even considering marriage while they're an undergrad. So that's the first one. The second one is, um, the second one is actually interesting, Aspala, now that you're asking about it, it's, it's the turmoil that students are going through in college as they're trying to navigate this like phase of transition transitioning into adulthood and so they have all this added responsibility all of and they have to make decisions about everything that's going to impact the rest of their lives in terms of their education and when they get to that phase basically anything that's that has been unresolved in terms of um family trauma right uh what they've gone through in their own immediate uh, families, relationships with their mothers, with their fathers, siblings, mm -hmm. horses in their family, um, mental health issues they may have been struggling with, um, you know, before, but now it really, when they're trying to navigate college, it, you know, the, um, the added stress of that, like, really uh, enhances some of those challenges. So I want to say that there is, um, there's a need for for, for a level of therapy and healing um, on a very just basic human emotional level. And then mm -hmm. third, and this is interesting because this is this comes last in my experience of sitting one-on-one. -on -one. Now, these, these are not questions that would ever come out in a big Q&A session. If you're a chaplain and you're doing a halaqa and you're doing chapter of the Quran, tafsir, or, um, or uh, you know, any other topic of, of in, in terms of a study circle, the Q&A will always be related to the topic. 
But again, when you set when you set aside one on one time with the students, um, then that's very, very different. And so the third thing that I think comes up for students is um, is everything related to the practice of their Islam in the modern times and the understanding of their Islam in the modern times. So um, there are now they're in college and they're experiencing, for example, for many students like an MSA, right, a Muslim Student Association. And um, there's an organized body of young people who are trying to do beneficial things like Islam Awareness Week and Dawa tables and things like that. And um, as they are working with one another to try to, you know, um, put on these events and work towards these efforts, they come across differences of opinion within their MSA. And then they discover differences of opinion uh, amongst the students themselves and perspectives. And so that really challenges them to, to wonder, okay, so how do we really think about this question X or Y or Z? And now they really wanna know because they have to not just know it for themselves, but they're trying to do something for Islam. So they want to actually learn about it well enough so that they can um, speak on its behalf or organize a program correctly around that topic, um, or even uh, like reflect on themselves in terms of how they need to grow to better embody whatever that subject matter might be. So, um, so that's like, a, you know, if I want to say the third and last thing that comes up, at least in office hours would be, um, but it's, but it's still the most important, like from it's a top three um, would be, how do we understand our religion? How do we understand it right now with all of the current challenges um, that they are facing? And again, at a very individual level in their immediate context. Um, I remember once I was doing a, a, private, a more private study circle with sisters around the topic of sincerity, just sincerity, ikhlas. And um, one of the things that came up, I don't know if you can hear my kids in the background, please forgive me for that. No. <laughs> it's always a... Um, so we, we're talking about ikhlas. This is a very, but it's a private circle. And one sister opened up and she said, what am I supposed to do when my parents go to mixed weddings and where there's, where there's uh, dancing? And we, and she, you know, this is a hijab wearing like sister from the masjid that, you know, you would, I'm not trying to make that as like a, as like a label or something, but I'm saying that she is someone who not just like in America, for example, in the climate of Islamophobia and bigotry to wear hijab in this time is a lot harder than it was even when I was a kid. Right. So like this mm -hmm. is someone who has had the courage to, um, to wear a hijab in such a difficult climate to, um, you know, she's attended the, the, the weekend school, Islamic school type thing. She's grown up in the masjid. But what she's telling me is that outside of the mosque, outside of the masjid, um, her family goes to these mixed weddings where they have like dancing and partying and things like that. And her parents don't ever dance. They're like more, they're the more religious type that to not do that, um, you know, in, in a mixed setting. But they they will stand on the side and clap, and then they'll tell their kids to come and do the same. Um, and so I, that question completely like shocked me because I'm like, we're talking about like having sincerity with Allah, and that I realized that it's completely connected, right? The, the topic of sincerity when you get into ikhlas, um, and a person looks into their heart and wonders like, when do I ever choose someone other than Allah, right? Mm. Um, or and feel pressure to choose someone other than Allah. Interestingly, a lot of times the 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 the, the competition stuff. I don't want to use that term, but the for a lot of students, it's their own parents. 
Um, could you could you just repeat that? Because you said, that, that you said unfortunately. Sure. I said unfortunately for um, for a lot of students when they are reflecting on, you know, how do they truly be sincere to Allah and who or what ever is a pressure on their heart, you know, in terms of something that they would choose to do that's other than what Allah wants. Mm -hmm. for for a number of students it was actually their parents um, yeah so um and that and that's and that's a so on one hand we'll we'll teach like right do everything your parents mm -hmm. want you to do and all that but it's like we don't realize that where families are um and uh that there are i want to say um that we, sh that we can't assume, we just absolutely cannot assume that we understand uh, how difficult it is for young people um, in terms of the different pressures they face. That, that young people, when you're teaching them a concept in the deen, even in terms of tawakkul, in terms of relying on Allah, in terms of hoping in Him, in terms of doing things in the way that He's most pleased with, whatever it is, and um, there's, there's an openness that young people have for that. They really want to genuinely learn. Sorry, there's um, I have a two and a half year old and a seven year old, and they they happen to be right behind behind that door behind me, so you might be able to hear them. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. So um, yeah, they they young people have this openness to learning about growing and practicing. Their religion they, they truly do and it's very beautiful it's why i love working with college students mm -hmm. where they find uh challenges is when they want to go and actually practice it they may find their first hurdle being found in their own home um, to that practice so um whether and and there's so many different examples of this but i but it's like we can talk about from whether it's risk the idea of um how do you seek to have a halal income how do you work towards that? How do you put your reliance on Allah and know that the sustenance is actually from Him? Um, and, uh, you know, ha like basically have a high morale while you're waiting for certain openings, whether it's a job they're applying for versus like they'll go home and they'll just get hammered by their parents about how come you don't have a job yet, you know? And um, so the parents aren't realizing they've applied to 20 places, you know, they've done their they're trying to tie the camel the best they can, but they'll still get it at home for something that they really shouldn't, um, mm -hmm. you know, be, be, it's it's not in their hands, right? It's Allah who opens for them the door to that interview or to that job. Same, similarly, there'll be sisters who will come at home and their, their, their mother will actually be mad at them that, you know, um, how come you're not engaged yet? How come you haven't found a brother to marry yet? What's wrong with you? Uh, as if that's somehow in her hands, you know? Um, of course, yeah. like, there's a way for sisters, obviously, to, if they see a brother that they're interested in, to consider, to, to be the one that initiates the consideration process, but mm -hmm. that's not really what the mother was talking about when she said that to her. Um, and so it's interesting because... I'm quite surprised about that. I'm quite uh, surprised about that because... In my experience in the UK, parents usually trying to keep, you know, getting their children to postpone marriage till after university, you know, to keep them focused, you know, on track type thing. 
that tends to mm. be what they do to the boys definitely for the boys for the young men uh okay. they are they are pressured to not even think about it um whereas on the sisters they are pressured to hurry up and find someone you know you should be engaged by age this or that so and it's a very odd situation okay. i think i think it's probably something that is a contributor to the marriage crisis where you have um varying expectations for people who actually share a similar they're the same, they're the same cohort, they're the same social uh, generation. And the, the, the men are being t told to delay and the women are being told hurry up. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I mean, these are some things that, I mean, uh, in terms of dealing with young people in college, they are dealing with. And then the last and final one is really understanding their religion because of all of the challenges. And some of those challenges come from within the university classroom. Um, there are liberal traditions in in terms of um, I don't even want to call it traditions because it's fairly new. But there are uh, the genealogy of some of the trends in liberal education goes back to atheism, secularism, obviously, and um, and I want to say something that is almost. I mean, people would like to call it scientific, um, but it's, you know, science can describe, but it cannot provide meaning for, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, where I feel like the university um, can, can provide a hindrance for young people in terms of their just overall, the, the, the growth of their minds is... Um, that there's beneficial, there's absolutely beneficial education, obviously, in, in terms of going to college, but there's also a lot of non-beneficial um, and I would even say incorrect education that people get in college and they get tested on it and they have to turn in exams and write papers on it. Um, and that's something that I think was also a test for college students. I'm, I mean, as my bio mentioned that I'm, I was a religious studies major and Middle Eastern studies major. So you know, I'm taking a class on something like, uh, I was taking a class on Islam. And, when, and I remember it was like an 18 year old student sitting in my university classroom, taking a class on Islam. Um, and the professor was saying things I had never heard of in my entire life. And he would have like, the first part of the sentence would be something I recognized. And then the last part of the sentence would be something I had, I was completely unrecognizable to me. I had never heard in my entire life. So at some point <laughs> I took up in the classroom and I told the class, you know, if everybody wants to get a good grade on the exam, then you have to write what the teacher says. But if anyone here really wants to learn about Islam, please come to my masjid, the Islamic Center of San Diego on Sundays between the <laughs> 12 and 1. We have an intro to Islam class for people who are who are actually curious about this topic. And mm -hmm. um, it, people in the class thought it was a really uh, bold thing because but I was 18. I didn't, you know. And I also didn't know much about the background behind like the agenda of the teaching of religion in a university. So mm. it was just a really like, hey, I know this is a class, but there's another way to understand religion. And this is not, this is not the place for it. Um, mm. one, of the, one of the things that I remember was feeling bullied, um, you know, at an academic level, you know, as a, as a practicing Muslim student in university. And but the one that but it was good because I'd hear something that was completely outrageous. I'd have to go research it and look it up and be like, where did they come 
with come up with this because half of it right. sounds good and true but then somehow they took an observation and they through the analysis and conclusion they went to they went somewhere completely different and um i think that really helped because um if that happens and you and a, and a student really does follow up on what's being said and really does do the research it will only strengthen their faith there was never something said in class that right. i didn't follow up and try to study it deeply and understand it for myself that I didn't afterwards feel like subhanAllah they don't know my deen subhanAllah they got this so wrong um, and I would even say that happened yeah. that happened even at AUC master's program in Islamic studies um, in AUC so this is in Egypt American University in Cairo yeah, yeah. so at the, the the blessing there was I was going to Al-Azhar at the same time and yeah. going to AUC so, um, you know, in terms of like t taking both course loads at the same time and mm -hmm. the, the master's program there, sometimes the teacher would say something about like the Hanafi school. And it was, I was in a place where I could kind of say, um, like a, a branch issue in fiqh that is so minute that you have to really know where to go to, um, right. to discover to where know the yeah. yeah. And then we'd be able to do that and realize like it was mistranslated, it was misunderstood. They took a mistranslation and um, made a conclusion off a mistranslation and made a made a theory off a mistranslation and the whole thing was wrong. The whole understanding of what that topic was in the Hanafi school was completely wrong. And so um, and so when people are learning religion, uh, especially their dean, you know, you can you can go to Western universities for degrees. But know that you will always have to fact check, like every single thing. Uh, you cannot take it as is. You have to go back and do your own, have your own due diligence, um, and and lead, allow that research to lead you to better learning and to even correcting. So, yeah, Subhanallah, it's interesting that you say that because when I, uh, I I studied in Egypt as well, and then when I came back. Um, you know, and I had the opportunity to go to university here, I I could have gone and done Islamic studies at university. Mm -hmm. um, but because I hadn't graduated, I really wanted to complete a classical Islamic studies program, mm -hmm. uh, rather than just enter into, you know, Western University and study Islam, because I knew and I had this kind of, I'd already had a taster of it that it could possibly do me more harm than good. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that it's not as black and white as that, but usually I do try to encourage brothers and sisters who want to study Western Islamic studies mm -hmm. um, to either alongside that or before they enter that kind of domain uh, to really have the, you know, have spent their time with classical scholars, mm -hmm. uh, with good Islamic mentors, and have studied their deen, you know, to a certain extent before entering that space. Because mm -hmm. I've noticed, I'm actually doing uh, Islamic law, right? Mm -hmm. So this is like from the law department rather than the Middle East or Islamic studies department. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's Middle Eastern law and Islamic law. So it's very much taking the traditional and classical understandings of the Sharia and 
studying that as well, but then bringing it to the modern day and mm -hmm. how it's being applied in the Muslim world mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. So, which is really interesting, you know, mm -hmm. human rights, Islamic law, um, Islamic mm -hmm. finance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these kind of subjects, very, very interesting. But like you said, I remember one of my first um, lectures that I went to, the lady, she was introducing Islamic law to this class of a lot of non-Muslims and and also young Muslims who maybe had not studied Islam before, you know. And one of the first things she said, and I, I just can't imagine why she said this, okay. Um, she was talking about scholarship and Islamic scholarship, and she said, you know, you can only be a scholar if you're a man in Islam, right? <laughs> and she said, you know, one of the prerequisites of being a scholar is to be a man. And, you know, I was sitting there and I, I kind of couldn't let that one go, you know, <laughs> in a class full of non-Muslim women some, and, 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 you know, our young sisters, right? Mm -hmm. um, because it was just so blatantly inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe she was talking about Iran. I don't know, because she had more of a kind of Iranian law background, I think. Um, but I had to put my hand up and, you know, interject and i even just said to her well that can't be true because i'm an islamic scholar you know <laughs> like i literally had to say that in order to even though i don't like saying that in public mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um in that setting i felt like no for the for the isla of islam right, <laughs> i need to say this because i'm not just talking theory here you know yeah. uh -huh. i've graduated from that qualification mm -hmm. to call it that to a certain level um and you know afterwards the the younger students they all came up to me and they really thanked me for doing that um because it was a simple little thing yeah but you see, when things like that get let go of in the class mm -hmm. the collective i would say bullying i think bullying mm -hmm. is the right word because mm -hmm. people can't understand how it feels but when you're already kind mm -hmm. of treated as you know a backward religious outsider when people say things like that about your religion in a in a setting that's supposed to be kind of authoritative right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you're a young person and you're not feeling very confident it like hits you it hits you hard right it really does. so i felt like as an older student and as somebody who wasn't was a bit more confident maybe it was mm -hmm. kind of my to speak up you know when it's necessary and i said to the students listen you guys knew that that wasn't right and you're all coming to me afterwards and you're saying you know well you need to interject because one of the great things about western universities is at least in in the uk the, the culture is that you're allowed to put your hand up you're allowed to question and you're allowed to kind of challenge uh what the professor has said um, which is actually quite a good thing, um, mm -hmm. you know, in Western universities. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's time that we empowered students, even in their essays, right? Because there are different ways of presenting information. And if you have the evidence, yeah. and if you become excellent at writing essays and writing a good argument, mm -hmm. you can put forward islamic narrative or the orthodox mm -hmm. narrative 
you know, um, with evidence mm -hmm. in a convincing way yeah. and still get great grades. Yeah, absolutely. I've been trying to do that myself yeah. and it's been working so far, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. No, I, I agree. And I think that there's also from there's differences between professor and professor. So I personally found that if I went and did the due diligence of looking it up, fact checking, bringing back um, like a, a body of research to show that what what is actually there is different than what they said in class, then um, the teacher would accept it. Later on, I'd, I'd actually say that in class in front of everyone and the teacher would um, would agree with it or approve what I've said. I even write it on the test and the teacher would give me um, the you know full marks for that. But it was, but it did depend on the teacher. So there yeah. were teachers who didn't want to hear it um, and didn't want even to like give me an inch in that regard. And there were others that were really open um, and open to learning more and, and recognizing the limitation of their own um, access. So yeah, yeah. I do think what you said about, um, you know, how when, if you actually engage with the with the readings, with the materials, OK, instead of being afraid of them, because I think at first, you know, as a Muslim, especially as a practicing Muslim or religious Muslim, Orthodox Muslim, whatever you want to call it, when you read some of that stuff, it's like, oh, my God, like, you know, <laughs> do I even want to go down there? You know, do I even want to look there? Um, but if you are willing to engage and you have cover and you go and do your, like you said, due diligence, go and do the proper research, even go and talk to ulama, right? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes when I'm writing an essay, I will phone up shiur and I'll have a one-to-one -one with them about that topic to get the, I would say, orthodox understanding or the classical understanding in a better way um, so that I can bring that to inform my work, right? Mm -hmm. And I think by engaging, it doesn't make us weaker. Mm -hmm. You know, it can make us stronger. Um, and some of the best kind of uh, the academics today, you know, they have taken the works of Orientalists of the past, mm -hmm. uh, things that seem to be set in stone, right, mm -hmm. and have challenged it and have, you know, successfully been able to um, kind of bring about a paradigm shift, but they had to engage with the, the material, right? In order to, to be able to do that. It's interesting to going back to the deepest challenges that young people might face in the university as, as it relates to the other side of the coin. So it's like on one hand, there's meet what you're, what you're learning in school with a critical lens and an empowered lens, like I'm not going to take everything that is being said to me as, as to like you know, as truth, just because it's in a university classroom. Right. I will, I will use my own framework as a Muslim. I will use my own religion, my own Sharia, my own guidance, like that's based on God-given revelation, right? And a and a divinely sent prophet, you know, sallam, and that will be my moral compass in understanding everything in the world around me, even what I'm learning in a university classroom. So that's that's like one side of it. You can take it to the other side too, where it's the the what people are getting from their homes and from what's being done inside their home. Very aggressive, very abusive, and you know, for, for young people to know that 
just because their mother or father said in Islam, they have a right to do X, Y, Z, that's actually very abusive to them, doesn't mean their parents actually have that right. Like they, they also should feel empowered within their homes as because they're first and foremost, a servant of God. And once they know what God has legislated for themselves, there is no one who can tell them or pressure them or force them or into, into something that is basically harmful in the name of religion, whether it's academic religion or even the, the so-called religion that's taught in homes. So I'll give you an example. Um, there was a sister who told me that the reason she became a feminist is because her dad told her that in Islam, women are not allowed to be educated at past, past the bare minimum of what they need to just basically be alive, you know, in terms of um, like how to read and write. And um, so her dad didn't intend to send her to college and she put herself through college. Um, and uh, it wasn't that he wasn't saying, oh, financially, I don't have the means. He was more than willing to support her brothers for going to college. But he was like, no, you're a woman. You don't need did, to go Did to you college. say he was willing to fund? Did you say he was willing to fund her brothers to go yes. to college? Yes. Okay. But not her, because he said uh, in Islam, you're not supposed to get educated any more than this. Like this is, and so that's what she learned in her home, right? As quote unquote, the Islam. This is her father who goes to the masjid and prays on Fajr prayer and Eshad prayer, and he's there and his family's in the masjid. And they hear otherwise all the time in the masjid, they hear otherwise. But the Islam that they practice in their home is through a particular lens that is oppressive to her, right? And so she felt she had to go to feminism to get her God-given rights as a woman. And it's like, my, my message to her was, you didn't have to look outside your own religion. What your dad mm -hmm. was doing was actually against the religion. So, but you need to study your own religion so that you can come back and say to your own father in a nice and kind way that, no, um, there's a, this, what you're saying is not, is not true. It's not valid. And these are, you know, the evidences for that in our own faith tradition, in our own religion women have a right towards education. In our own religion, um, we, uh, there's not supposed to be a, a, a separation between the way that the good treatment that a father has towards his sons and his daughters. Um, so I mean, there's a narration of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu about uh, the rewards of the one who does not prefer their sons over their daughters, right? Um, and so we have that there, you know, at, at almost any issue where a woman is struggling in her social life or her family life and her community life, you find divine or prophetic guidance um, that would help her get out of that, you know, um, calamity or that pressure that uh, is is put against her in an undue manner. But, you know, in the words of um, Zainab al-Ghazali, she said, women have to study Islam because it is through Islam that Allah has guaranteed her all her rights. So um, what, what a lot of Muslim women um, may do is just take for granted everything they hear at, and assume, and assume like what I have heard, whether it's in, again, university classroom or at home with their parents or wherever they hear it, they'll just assume if someone is speaking in the name of Islam, right, then it must be true. And, and so it challenges them and it challenges their faith until they study their religion and then they know what's true um and i know that that's you know studying islam is not something you do overnight it's um you know it does take a lot you know when someone's a scholar 
the great scholars that we know who have 30 years plus of research and study under their under their belt, the senior elderly ones. And um, they have a nuance that someone who's only studied, for example, um, two years uh, doesn't have. And so, so sometimes some of the most severe voices will come from those who actually haven't studied very much, right? Um, so a young man will be, go and become an imam. He'll memorize the Quran. He may do a year at an institute, and then he'll come back and he'll answer questions in the community in absolute terms, right? Can I do this? Yes. Can I do that? No. And he won't say, uh, there's more than one opinion on this topic. The opinion of this madhab is this. The opinion of this scholar is this. There's, there's a difference on this issue. And so a lot of the nuance that's actually there in the sharia is not reflected in, in um, shallow research. So uh, the benefit of someone studying is they will arrive to nuance. And um, there is often like the, 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 the subject matters of ijma'at, like there's a book in, in Egypt from the, um, that we had bought and it was like all of the matters that are mujma'ale, right? That the scholars that there's absolute consensus on. It was so small, it was one of our thinnest books, <laughs> right? Other books are like eight volumes, nine volumes, the mujma'ale, like absolute scholarly consensus was a very small book. And then everything else has nuance, shades of differences and meaning and options. And so the Sharia has a rahma embedded into it, a mercy that's embedded into it. And that a, a proper scholarly method for the qualified person is required, right? So they talk about the, um, the shurut al-mujtahid, Right. What are the conditions of someone being mujtahid? And um, they may talk about uh, like the the different usul that have been followed in the in the past in terms of usul fiqh. So different madhahab have different usul. Um, the, the foundations of the usul are the same, but they may have some differences and nuance. So there's a there needs to be a correct methodology, and it has to be a qualified person. But the answers can be very very different for the same topic. And so for anyone to Say, speak in the name of Islam in an absolute manner and say something like a blanket statement, um, whether again, it's in the university classroom or it's in a Muslim home, that has to be challenged. That has to be challenged. And it can be challenged in a nice way, it can be challenged in a polite way, it can be challenged with young people seeking out scholars and imams to come and talk to their parents um, about different things. But I don't think it needs, I think that this is such an important issue because if we don't and, you know, encourage young people to, to have the courage and feeling of safety to study their own religion themselves mm -hmm. for the solutions that they're looking for in their lives, uh, for the answers, for guidance, right? Um, general directions. As their moral compass, they will find it somewhere else. And it will often have some parts of it, that thing that they're looking at will, will uh, you know, provide some healing for them, but it will also take them off the mark, right? So right. Um, in terms of the wholesale agenda of the feminist movement is, is an entirely different thing, right? So a person is just looking to not be oppressed in their own home, to be treated spiritually equal to their brothers, right? To be having the rights that God has already given them, they should not feel like they need to go to any other system, uh, whether it's communism or socialism or mm. any other ism in the world, you know, to give them what God has already um, granted them. So that's, right. I think that that is, 
that's something that as a community um, we have to help young people with, even right now in terms of social justice. There's, you know, we were involved in social justice work when I was in college before it was cool, before it was the thing to do, before it was all over the news and they have, you know, Pepsi commercials about it. Like social justice was, um, has causes and, you know, collective community efforts have always, alhamdulillah, been there. And I just want to emphasize before it was cool, okay? Because right now it's really cool to be involved in social social justice issues. <laughs> and there's like, because it's cool, there's a culture to it. And there's a culture that's developed in um, both through popular media, through the efforts of social justice activists, as well as, um, as theories and isms. And so right. what we have right now in university is critical justice theory, right? sorry, critical race theory, critical gender theory. And yep. um, so young people are studying these things in the university and then they're thinking, okay, I wanna apply this to my life. And again, when you take any ism wholesale, right? As, as some kind of compass, you're really missing the mark as a Muslim. You know, uh, right. things mm -hmm. have, they need to, like knowledge has a filter for us, <laughs> right? And yeah. that filter is our own faith. Um, and, you know, there's, we talk about like social justice. What about epistemic justice? You know, uh, what is the, the root of knowledge? Why are some um, sources of knowledge privileged over other sources of knowledge? In the university, the liberal atheist agenda is privileged over the religious uh, based um you know, sources of knowledge or even traditional knowledge of, 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 of peoples who, you know, you know, like um, who have existed and they have their own methodologies, right? Chinese medicine has only now become accepted, but it was considered what in the past, right? And, um, or, or um, the traditions of natives peoples, like there is, there is even in the university that's talking about social justice or, you know, critical race theory, critical gender theory, there's inequality in it. It's embedded in it. If as soon as it says that a religious foundation um, as a source of knowledge is somehow less equal to what they are teaching, right? That is automatically uh, imposing a form of inequality in terms of, in terms of the sources of knowledge itself. So um, for young people who are taking classes on critical gender theory or feminism um, or it doesn't have to be those things. It could be economics. It can be, um, be any topic really to, to have a filter and to know that I need to look at this and take what is beneficial because there is beneficial it doesn't exist for no reason there is definitely benefit that can be taken from there and mm -hmm. um, you know appreciated understood and used in our own work towards towards good causes but not to take it wholesale and to be very acutely aware of where does this message go against my tradition both in terms of its form and its substance, right? Because sometimes something looks good on the outside, but it's spiritually completely uh, right. off, right? Um, there are, and I could go on for a, longer than I should, but this is something that I think, um, again, there's a, now it's cool to be involved in social justice. It's, it's, uh, right. it's popular and it has its own culture and it's easy to get permeated with that, you know, that we talk about call out culture or cancel culture, right? That's part of the current social justice, like um, climate, social justice work climate. How much of that is within Islam? 
we, we do correct things, absolutely. We believe in islah, right? We believe in nasliha and, um, and all of that. But is the methodology that we are seeing in the public arena, is that the methodology of our deen? Or does it completely go against the methodology of our deen? And, you, and people won't be able to know that unless they have enough requisite knowledge of their own deen um, to, to see that. So young people, again, in college who are learning things, uh, I think they uh, should be encouraged. Not just young people, adults, organizational leaders. Like there is a, we want what we produce for the world, the contribution that we make to be coming from a place of Izza, like you mentioned, that, you know, we are confident in our Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We are confident that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala has given us a guidance for all time. And that this is the core root of what we will rely on, what we will turn to, what we will reflect on in order to meet the challenges of the day. Um, it, is the, it is the moral compass. It is the filter for everything else. Uh, and I think that when we do it the other way around, uh, I remember um, once being asked, I want to, if I can go help someone go through the Sira and find all um, like examples in the Sira that can help teach a particular topic in a class they were teaching. And, and I told them, I said, I understand like this idea of let me find examples of this so I can teach this topic is one way of doing it. But I'm like, if you were to really approach this holistically, you would study the Sira as a whole, see what is what are the principles it is teaching us, not how do I associate right. stories with my own preconceived ideas, but mm -hmm. let me study it for what it's giving me. Let me extract from this mm -hmm. principles rather than impose upon it the messaging I'm trying to get out of it for the purpose I'm trying to serve in whatever capacity at a you know civil rights organization or um, or otherwise. Um, and so, yeah, I think that we need to have greater confidence in our own religious or religion, our own scholarly tradition, and uh, help people to have access to it. The average person increasing their access to literacy, basic Islamic literacy, um, basic understandings in usul al-fiqh, differences of opinion, um, just these are not these are not hard. You know, but they are foundational issues that when they are um, when they're not offered to young people, subhanAllah, like they they will struggle for years about about something that really uh, could have been resolved much earlier on in their lives had the right foundations been provided for them and the right empowerment. Like you have you have the not only the right, but like Islam welcomes you to study it. <laughs> you know, this religion welcomes your um your gaze you know it welcomes your study it welcomes you to come and learn absolutely you know just listening to you it reminded me of um something one of my friends uh sister zara faris who's done quite a lot of work on um you know islam and feminism one of the things she says is you know socialism for example okay or capitalism communism these are solutions right put mm. forward to the problem of the economy and we as muslims we would never say islam is capitalist it's the islamic economic system for example or the islamic economic solutions are capitalist or that they are communist mm. we might say you know 
okay, this this thing, this idea from capitalism, yeah, Islam would agree with that. And this idea from communism or from socialism, mm -hmm. Islam would uh, find that congruent with its worldview. And, but we would posit that Islam has its own economic system, right? mm -hmm. its own economic vision. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I think if, um, you know, one of the ways that we can explain to sisters who quite innocently and quite, you know, with kind of good intentions might want to adopt um, feminism as a, you know, as a cause, we could say something similar to them, that just as, you know, communism is one answer to the problem of the economy or capitalism, capitalism is one answer to the problem of the economy. And we as Muslims would not adopt either of them wholesale. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, feminism is one, well, you could say actually it's all, it's all sorts of responses to the problem of, or the question of women's rights. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we as Muslims, we have our own framework for addressing the problems, you know, the, of, the problem of oppression, basically, oppression towards women or oppression towards men. And so when you take an ideology wholesale, as you're saying, you know, if, if, if you were to take an ideology wholesale, you need to be really careful because you need to look through what the premise of that ideology is, right? What the premises are to the arguments that that ideology uh, presents, uh, what the backgrounds of the ideologues who have helped to formulate that ideology. So whether, you know, those ideologues have been consistent over the years, you know, with their own kind of thought, um, all of those kinds of things, you know, need to be scrutinized. So although I would say to brothers and sisters out there who, you know, might have, Islam might have been presented to them in the incorrect way, etc., and they might have been attracted to other kind of other ideal ideologies or systems of thought, I would say the onus is also on you, you know, as a Muslim, mm -hmm. to do your own research, right? If you're a student, you are being primed to do research. So, um, you know, I don't think there's much excuse nowadays. Like, you know, I'm trying to be a bit tough on the students out there, you know, and say that, you know, mashallah, there are scholars, there are traditional, um, you know, online and on-site uh, institutes all over the West now, you know? I mean, Al-Azhar University has an online program. You know, so in terms of people who want to go and do a tradition, like subhanAllah, that wasn't there when I was when I was doing undergrad. I think it appeared it started like the last year when I was when I was finishing and um, mm -hmm. they didn't have an online undergraduate Islamic studies, you know, program. It wasn't the what we did was specifically Sharia, but um, but still that they did had a comprehensive program. Uh, Islamic studies, they're they're the degree in that is a little bit different than the Sharia program, but still it does have a lot. It has, it has Islamic law. It has, um, you know, it had, but it has just less of every kind of different component, whereas Sharia is entirely Islamic law. So the, um, but I mean, just that's to, for, for one of the oldest universities in the history of the world, not just the history of Islam, one of the oldest universities in the history of the world mm -hmm. has an online undergraduate degree program you know so um 
you know, going back to the subject of feminism and its pull on the Muslim community and Muslim women during this time, um, one of the things that I've heard Muslim women say is we're so tired of hearing talks and lectures about women in Islam and their rights and how they're treated so well because in our lives, we don't see any of that. Like there are talks about the rights of marriage and the rights of inheritance and her economic rights in marriage and the shura that her husband is supposed to have with her, like in terms of consulting her on issues and how she is supposed to, um, you know, be honored in different life phases and different ways. And like in terms of the beautiful narrations we have in, from the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And so they're just, they don't want to hear it. Yeah, the, the reason they don't want to hear it is because the de facto practice in their families, in their cultures, sometimes even in their masjids, is completely different than what is taught at the women in Islam lecture, right? Or class. Yeah. So they'll go to a masjid that does not allow women at all. And that's happened to me. I literally tried to pray and they told me to go to the storage room of the bookstore while there was a massive masjid next to it with no one in it. This happened in the UK, um, not a Muslim country. This happened also in a Muslim country when I was living in Egypt. Um, there are definitely masjid that allow women, but then there's masjid that don't. So there are these women who will say, I don't want to hear any more talks about women in Islam because in our lives, people aren't practicing it. It's like we want to show everyone that Islam you know, um, really honors women Right. As a as almost a, a marketing tool. But what we really need to do is make sure that and, and, and have methods of really holding our institutions accountable, first and foremost, because the public institutions, um, they set the they set the standard for a lot of people. And then and then also going back and addressing what's happening in Muslim families and what's happening to Muslim women on a very real level. You know, we have, unfortunately, we have the same, I shouldn't say the same, but we also have issues of domestic abuse in the Muslim community, right? We have issues of um, psychological abuse, emotional abuse. We have divorced women who have come out of very traumatic marriages. <clears throat> and a lot of these women will afterwards remove their hijab. And it's not because they don't love Allah, but they don't love the version of Islam that was forced upon them in a very traumatic marital experience. And so it's almost like they're trying to be like, I'm Muslim, but, I, but I'm not practicing your Islam. You know, the Islam that beat me up, the Islam that silenced me, the Islam that marginalized me and made me feel like I was not, I was, I, that I wasn't worth anything. You know, and so, um, so some of the responses that we see in the Muslim community when in, in terms of turning to uh, a, like a, a movement like feminism, for example, is because there's a lot of real pain that theory alone, our discussion of our philosophical religious framework alone is not going to bring the healing that is needed for these women. Um, and so we really do need to change the culture, uh, the, the rules, the systems, um, and we need to get into actually bringing up the standard of the way that uh, women are treated uh, you know, in our own community, according to our own methodology and according to our own framework, we have to do if, if we put work in that realm, I think we're going to see a lot less people talking about other theorists, <laughs> you know, and other projects and other movements and other we're not doing the work. 
we're not where we we need to do better at um at being able to stand uh for what's principled and right based on our own religious Maybe. beliefs. And it reminds me Salva, of this um hadith uh where Omar bin al-Khattab you know he he was making a speech and he said you know don't be excessive in giving dowries you know don't give high dowries to women okay because <laughs> he felt that the dowries were getting a bit out of hand right and um, one of the Sahabiyat, or what, I don't know if it was a Sahabiyat, it could have been the next generation, a, a Muslim woman, she stood up and she said, uh, it's not so, O Omar, for Allah says, you know, and then she quoted the ayah of the Quran, uh, that, you know, you can give them, even if you give them a great amount, you know, it's, it's okay. So Omar said, so when Omar heard this, so in other words, she used the deen, she used knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. She used knowledge in order to um, influence Omar or to correct Omar. And he, you know, he even said, you know, indeed, the woman has spoken, the woman is right and I am wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Or in narration, you know, he said, everyone, everyone is more knowledgeable than Omar, right? So I think one of the things about, um, from that hadith that I've really always felt is, it kind of reminds me that as a Muslim woman and as, as a Muslim, anytime I see something that needs changing or an incorrect understanding that maybe a community or part of the community have adopted, I feel that the best way to try to change that is not to reject that community and then go outside and have, you know, adopt a framework that is alien to the deen, or to Islam, but instead to enter and engage, just as this lady did, you know, when there was something that she felt was, that she knew was incorrect, um, she spoke up, but she used knowledge and she did it in a, in a acceptable way. She used the, I would say, the, the kind of, the route that was available to her um, in order to bring about change. And I do think that, like myself, just being engaging with Muslim scholars, engaging with uh, leaders of Masajid and different communities in a very positive way with wisdom. Personally, I feel that will bring about more kind of progress and change than doing anything too kind of sudden and radical. Because, and, and the reason for that is, although there are things like, for example, you know, the massage is not allowing women and mm -hmm. stuff like that, but by now, those things should have changed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, still, there are some kind of, I would say, historical reasons, you know, or context that we kind of need to understand to, to appreciate why those things are the way they are. Not that that excuses that okay but it just kind of explains okay what so the, yeah yeah it explains what happened and and why certain things are the way they are and that mm -hmm. could kind of highlight to us maybe what we need to focus on in order to to change things as well yeah um, i mean to, to 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 bring about change from within takes um takes a lot more uh, I want to say energy and um, 
an effort. There's a lot more effort like to bring it about from within. <clears throat> I do want to add though that there are women I know who have um, been really traumatized from putting in, let's say, a decade's worth of work or years of their life um, into trying to bring about some kind of benefit in a, in a Muslim community institution. And because right now I do community chaplaincy, or I, I do, I have office hours through the majlis. I get one-on-one -on -one appointments now from, alhamdulillah, like not just college students, but wherever anyone, I mean, even like, um, especially in the age of the pandemic from different countries, they just, we, we, we do it through um, the WhatsApp phone number. So some of the stories I'm hearing through the global Muslim community, uh, about from women in particular, um, is, is about experiences where they actually did try to go in and change an institution or work mm -hmm. towards the betterment of one. And they they feel so drained. And this is not unique to women. I've heard this from actually um, men as well, uh, male instructors, teachers, imams, where they'll go into an institution, put their heart and energy and just pour their the best of what they have to offer into trying to better an institution for the Muslim community, only to be really badly burned afterwards. Um, and by burned, I mean uh, completely ostracized, seen as a troublemaker, not allowed to enter meetings, not allowed to uh, like enter spaces that they used to hold the keys for. Um, things where they were just basically like being perceived as, and again, going with good intentions, with beautiful conduct, but somehow authorities in charge really feeling like, I don't want to change things the way this person is asking me to. And when I see this person, they're kind of a threat. So we're just going to ostracize them collectively, just treat them like they're not there, walk past them, ignore them. And um, so that's one example. The other example is the opposite where they'll fire like the local imam <laughs> or they'll give him a terrible review. Um, and the community loves the imam and the community, like he's literally poured his life into, into like, teaching their children and whatnot. But so the point is, is that like, I do want to say yes. We should. We should. the The ideal situation is to go in and work for the betterment of institutions. But on the other mm -hmm. hand, there is just like there are tyrant oppressors in the Muslim world, right? We do have tyrant oppressors in the boards of masajid and Muslim institutions. We do. There, they. We have people who love authority, um, and they love um, holding these positions for the purpose of their own selves or whatever it is. And um, one of the proofs of, of that, that things are missed, it's not just that they may have a quote unquote difference of opinion, because you can still honor someone with a difference of opinion. You can still welcome someone when you don't agree with them. You can still give them a place to, to be and to feel accepted within the community when you don't, when you don't agree with their ideas. But when someone is, um, I want to say when people are treated badly, okay, tr like uh, literally yelled at, um, so I know sisters who will have spent a lot of their time and energy um, invested in the Muslim community, trying to better them, trying to, uh, you know, even fundraise for them, trying to really help with adab from within to, um, from a place of really goodwill of not only trying to um, maybe shift some of the practices mm -hmm. that, are, that are harmful towards the community to, to being more beneficial, um, especially uh, practices that are harmful towards women. And then... Um, they will have like poured their heart and energy into these institutions and unfortunately been mistreated in the process, very, very uh, egregiously mistreated. Mm -hmm. And then those same women will go into a um, any kind of 
organization in the community, like the, in the wider community, that is a, a non-Muslim organization, right? Like maybe it's yeah. an interfaith organization, maybe it's chaplaincy at a university with other, you know, people, or it's uh, civil rights, right? But it's a, it's a, it's again not a Muslim organization. It's a general organization that deals with, um, uh, I want to say, a, a nonprofit that deals with, you know, well-being in the community, and they will find automatically that they are respected, honored, and automatically elevated to the highest levels of leadership within that organization. Um, I know a sister who. Uh, you know, Netflix, like the, or, you know, the, the, the um, company, yeah. the, the company Netflix saw mm -hmm. her credentials and saw her capacity and they asked her to apply for their opening uh, as a, as a vice president of, of the company, of the entire company of Netflix. And this is a Muslim sister who, uh, mashallah, is, has been involved in a number of Muslim organizations in her rightful place, in her qualifications, and her knowledge, and her experience, and her wisdom is to be the head of that organization. Like, hands down, whenever I've seen her work, I'm like, I'm, I've just been humbled. Um, but when she's, again, not that she even is seeking authority, she's not, subhanAllah, she's always been the servant of these other organizations. She's helped so many different masajid and institutions, um, you know, be able to collect the funds they need to exist. But that mm -hmm. sister will be used for fundraising. But when she says, <laughs> When she has a suggestion for maybe yeah. we need to do a program that's like this, maybe we need to do something like that. That's going to be of service to the community and help women or help the condition of our sisters. In those situations, it's more like um, thanks but no thanks, right? And often a condescending oh, tone because she's a woman. A condescending tone, and she's told me what some. Do you know? Do you know what laughing, Mustafa? What was that? Uh, because I have, I said, do you know why I'm laughing? <laughs> it's because I've experienced this myself, you know. <laughs> I've experienced this myself. And um, it is disheartening. It is, um, you know, especially when, I don't know if you've experienced this. And, you know, I hope that this conversation is beneficial for brothers and sisters who are listening. And especially maybe brothers who might be running organizations or involved in organizations. Um, one of the things I've noticed is that sometimes uh, maybe it's because the brothers, you know, the organizations are quite new or they're quite unsure about how sisters should fit in. I'm not sure. Mm. But I sometimes get the feeling that although they recognize that the brothers come in all different qualities and different with different backgrounds and different strengths and different personalities, there tends to be this treatment of sisters as a monolith, you know, like sisters will be great volunteers or sisters will be great for fundraising, as you said, or, um, you know, for a, a very kind of to niche area. Hall, to decorate the beautiful hall where the event's going to take place and to clean it up. Yeah. And, and, to, uh, and obviously that's not to belittle those roles. No. no. But just as brothers have different personalities and different roles and different kind of strengths, mm -hmm. sisters are the same, right? Like, um, there, it's perfectly possible for there to be a sister who is more qualified to, you know, be in a thinking role, a mm -hmm. director role, for example, mm -hmm. um, who isn't suited to, you know, managing or being there on an operation level, for example, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and yet, unfortunately, I, I've experienced this as well, that sisters are sometimes, um, you know, pigeonholed, I would say, into particular roles. And, and I fear that Muslim organizations are losing out on talent, you know. Um, they really are. They really are, because a lot of these women now have, um, you know, they have worked in other organizations, other institutions outside the, again, outside the Muslim community. And then only when they've achieved some kind of prominence in these other organizations, then the Muslim community notices, we have a practicing Muslim sister who's working in, you know, I won't say the name of the organization. And then all yeah. of a sudden that mm -hmm. sister is invited to speak and it, but it's like, she was there all along, right? She was in your community all along. You had to wait till a non-Muslim institution honored her, recognized her, rewarded her and awarded her before you could give her a, a, a voice within the community. I still remember when, um, was it Angelina Jolie uh, came to a major masjid in America? I don't know if you heard about that in the UK, but it was it was the brouhaha uh, in the sense that um, she they had an event and she came into a, a major masjid and it was you know, attended by the media and it was attended by the community. And she comes into the musalla, right? To the front of the musalla with um, other speakers and whatnot. And she addresses the Muslim community. And there were so many women who, it wasn't that they had a problem with Angelina Jolie per se, but they were, but they said basically like, you brought in a Hollywood actress <laughs> to come and speak to our community from in front of the masala, and we have never had a woman do this in our own masjid who is a knowledgeable teacher or scholar or da'ya or even someone from the youth program who's going to share a poem. You know what I mean? Um, like you had to, uh, I want to say you organized this event around um, the prominence of a non-Muslim uh, female speaker and again they don't have a problem with the fact that she's non-muslim or that she's female but that she this is like the first time it's happening right for many messages um looking at this major event in the in the muslim community so um it's very insulting it's very insulting and the tokenization is very real like we need to have women invited as speakers to events so the token female speaker or the token females uh you know just so that people don't get mad at that particular event um, and then giving them a very, very minimal, um, tiny space within the program in uh, almost dictating the entirety of the talk to them and the talking <laughs> um, yeah. these are These are real things. And it's like, we can talk yes. about women's rights, but yeah. what we are, our, our practice yeah. seems to show people that, you know, we're, we're like, do we really honor and value the woman's voice? And I want to say that, like, yes, we have, in Islam, when you think about like spiritual patriarchy, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu is like a father figure for this ummah. So I believe in that, you know. But I also believe in spiritual mm -hmm. matriarchy as well. Like, and I believe that we have both. We have our mother Khadija mm -hmm. and Aisha radiallahu and you know the 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 uh, mothers of the believers as these voices of guidance for us in our lives um, and their examples in the Quran the great women of paradise the great sahabia that we know about so we do have we have both spiritual patriarchy and spiritual matriarchy and I wouldn't say I don't I don't actually talk so much about um, and this is a controversial thing to say I say I don't I say like yeah you know we have spiritual equality but I believe on a social level I believe in privilege. <laughs> I believe in privilege. And everyone's like, what? What are you talking about? I'm like, I believe that 
men are privileged in certain ways and women are privileged in certain ways. And what tends to happen is men in the Muslim community is Muslim men are claiming their privilege and Muslim women do not claim their God-given privilege. And if we actually did claim our privilege in the same way, um, and this is, I'm not talking about, you know, um, come, you know, inventing anything. I'm talking about God-given privilege. Allah has privileged yeah. Muslim women in ways, in certain ways. Uh, we would actually see that complementary balance. We would actually see a space where both genders are really honored. To give you an example, we often, um, aside from the fact that there's inheritance abuse, there's economic abuse, there's women who uh, work and their money is automatically assumed within as being part of the household. And she actually has a right and an imperative to have her own bank account and to choose how she spends her money. Like that, that's, that's something that widely in America is not the, the, the norm. Uh, sh her income is often, if I know very few cases, I should say, where her income is not separate and according to how she chooses to spend it. And that's a, that's a very fundamental principle no sheikh will disagree with, right? That if her income is being used to support the family, it's sadaqah and it's by her choice, not by being forced. The actual yeah. obligation is on the husband. So there's that. Um, that's the first one. The second thing is this idea that after Allah and his messenger, who do you honor? Your mother, your mother, your mother, right? Now in our, the architecture of our Muslim institutions, where are the mothers? Where is their place? We're going to try to honor our mothers as a community. Do they have the dungeon? Do they have the room that's in the back that's downstairs that's smelly next to the closet and all the storage boxes? And that's where they can keep the kids, you know? Does the architecture of our masjid even consider where mothers with small children are going to be? Mm. It's oh. like in the building of something, it's like after Allah and his messenger, your mother. Okay, so now I need to think as an organizational leader, how is my space going to honor and welcome mothers? And subhanAllah, the amazing thing is that if you, if community institutions really prioritize the well-being and the welcome and the ease of access for mothers in that institution, like making it so, so, so that a mother can just be like, oh, this place I can just go to. Even though I have kids, I have responsibilities, but this is a place I can be involved in. When mothers are taken care of, the entire community is taken care of. That's the blessing of actually following the guidance. When mothers are given the capacity to be in, uh, included in this space of an institution, they naturally, subhanAllah, it's like a blessing. I want to say it's almost like the reward of, of, of following the prophetic guidance. Um, they, are, they often end up just out of, because of the nature of the mother, they end up taking care of everything. They will volunteer to no end. They will cook to no end. They will call up all their friends and have them cook to no end. You will have free food for all your goods. <laughs> like, you know, when mothers are brought about, mothers network. Some institutions recognize the value of the, the women's network, the mother's network. But again, I want to say more than just like giving them that honor. Think about how we how would we honor our own mother in our own home? We would listen we, to their advice, right? If she's <laughs> she has something to guide us in, if there's something that she wants to correct us in, we uh, you know apply the quality of birul walidain that we try to practice individually on a social and institutional level. Where is the place of our elders? Uh, old women who cannot go up the stairs to the second floor to the musalla are in this tiny corner of the men's musalla feeling like this left out group of 
what, you know? That's how we treat our mothers. And if we flipped it, subhanAllah, if we really flipped the paradigm, we would see, I think, um, a lot of blessing, not just like success as an institution, but we'd see barakah, we'd see blessing because we're, we are practicing these values. And this is like specialized privilege, right? Honoring the elderly, they deserve a special honor. Honoring scholars, they deserve a special honor. Honoring mothers, they deserve, like the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi you're saying that three times, right? These are um, this idea of nazilanas manaziluhum, put people mm. in the proper places. And when we don't do that, um, there is dhulm. That's when oppression happens. Uh, you know, and Absolutely. even, even, Ustada, even a simple thing, like for example, I remember there was a there was an institute and the the brothers would enter through the main entrance mm. and they would immediately be in the warm you know like entrance and they would have an easy kind of access to the classrooms right mm. and the sisters uh, all in our jilbabs are long you know <laughs> long clothes buyers and everything would have to go up these stairs okay outdoor stairs made of metal that were very kind of dangerous you could slip anytime and you're going up two or three flights in order to avoid clashing with the brothers right in, in order to avoid that and subhanallah i remember thinking to myself you know no this isn't the right thing you know we the sisters if you really care about women and, mm -hmm. and also if you really believe that yani you know and men also, you know, they're supposed to be the protectors, the caretakers of the women. And, you know, women intrinsically have a certain level of sensitivity, etc., etc. Then you should be giving the ease of access, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? The comfortable access to the sisters, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And making the brothers go up all those stairs and, you know, in that kind of dangerous entrance etc right so mm -hmm. it's really strange why certain things that seem so obvious are not are not yeah. implemented you know um I, I don't know what the i don't know what the reason for that is it could be because i've seen a tendency in my mom's generation for example mm -hmm. this is uh you know, people from the indo-pakistani kind of background i've seen a tendency to for women to always kind of make the men comfortable, you know, mm -hmm. for that to be a given, you know, that mm -hmm. men are meant to be comfortable, you know, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. if it's at the discomfort of the women, you know, that's, that's the cultural norm, I would say, you know, like my mom literally would be the last to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, she would make sure the men have all eaten and, you know, and then she would take care of herself. So there is that kind of, I think, it could be a remnant of that culture, you know, mm -hmm. of women kind of maybe even just doing it themselves or it, it just being a culture that passed down that, you know, the men go first, the men get the most comfortable. The, when really, when you look at, you know, subhanAllah, when you look at the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu yeah. Alaihi Wasallam, um, you know, it's the opposite. Yeah. And I think chivalry, the idea of chivalry, of, um, you know, the protective nature of 
you know, the believing men and women are awliya of one another, right? In the sense that they they call to what is good and they forbid what is evil, right? And this, there's a verse of that in the Quran. And um, this idea of believing men and women being awliya of one another, this is like a protective um, love for the sake of Allah, right? That, that, that mm -hmm. exists between our brothers and sisters. So I, on one hand, I wanna say like the gesture of the, the wife or the mother to nurture and to to like to love the different members of her household and to honor them is 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 rewarded but i want to say that it is two ways that it should never just be that the that on one hand um this you know let's say the mother is um like letting her kids eat first or letting her husband even eat her eat first that's coming out of her like the goodness of her heart right and may she be yeah. rewarded for that but what's the what's the right response Right, the right response is like, no, no, you you did all this. Let me, um, you you can eat first. Like offering it back to her. Why don't you sit down, and you know you. And if she says no, 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 because a lot of times I know as like a as a as someone who's prepared food for my family, like I when I see everybody settled and eating and comfortable, mm -hmm. that's when I can relax and eat my own food, right? And it's like I can't actually enjoy mine until I see everybody mm -hmm. else kind of already settled. So that's that's there. But then something, subhanAllah, as an example that like my husband, God bless him and protect him and protect him from any kind of hasad whatsoever. But something he'll do is he'll wash the dishes afterwards. Like if I'm um, doing that in the kitchen or whatever, doing the, pre the preparation, then he will actually wash all the dishes. Um, and so, you know, I feel blessed by that, you know, but it's it's this idea of taking care of each other. And he doesn't do the dishes because I asked him to. He doesn't do them because he just sees them in the sink he already knows i've worked you know in that day and then he washes them all alhamdulillah and so that's like i mean we jokingly say that he's washed more dishes in his life than i did than i have <laughs> so um so but there's this idea of taking care of each other that's also that's like coming right. from a place of like goodwill and um you know there's uh there's just when we have like goodwill experiences with each other as a community, as like, I'm talking, here's an example of marriage, right? But you can see that in the larger community in terms of just brothers and sisters really caring for each other and putting the other side first um, or having ethod. But in particular, the Prophet ﷺ, he said like, rifqan bil qawarir, like women are, right. yes, women deserve a certain privilege. Again, women you as women deserve a certain level of like ladies first <laughs> type of type yeah. of that can, you, can you translate? Can you translate Rifkan bil for uh, be gentle with the, um, with the, God. I think it's. Um, <laughs> no, no. I've, I've heard it being translated as fragile vessels. Yeah, <laughs> be gentle with vessels, vessels or, or fragile, like yeah. uh, precious, like precious. Be gentle yeah. with precious, um, like yeah. vessels, like like a like a chandelier is made of glass, right? So you don't like. You're not rough with it or else it'll break um and it doesn't mean that women are um not strong the idea is that they're very precious and that they have a different um like natural sort of uh state or, or nature and that they are to be treated with an extra level of gentleness um and even care right than uh, a man would treat another man uh, we don't have a gender spectrum. We have a gender binary. <laughs> and yeah. um, so the female is not like the male. The male is not like the female. And, um, you know, we are to treat women in particular with a very special added care. Um, 
and that's like you said sometimes it's the opposite of that as an like it's one thing in, in a family setting where the mother is wanting to take care of everyone and make sure everyone's yeah, like, yeah. settled and eating mm -hmm. but on an institutional level it's a completely different thing like women and children um are the you take care of those who are um the most vulnerable or weak like you take care of the elderly the, those who are sick you take care of women and children those are who those are the first category so because an institution reflects um reflects morals, values, and principles, right, for the entire community, even down mm -hmm. to who can lead prayer, who is the most worthy of leading, being the imam in a prayer congregation. We have fiqh on that. We have an understanding of, you don't just put anyone to lead the prayer, the person who has this uh, more knowledge of Islamic law has more how to lead prayer. We have the concepts, right, of, of mm -hmm. who goes first. And um, when it comes to, at an institutional level, we honor the elderly first. We honor our mothers first. Um, we honor and we take care of those who are um, the youngest and weak, quote unquote, weakest. I know I'm going to use the term weak, but like children, for example, um, their mm -hmm. needs come first. And and then the men go second. That's just, and that's not an, as to say that men are, quote unquote, less important, but it's like the um, the the leader or the one who has the, the, the role of qawama, he is, his job is to actually make sure that everyone else is cared for, right? Um, so, and to be fair, mm -hmm. I was going to say, to be fair, like some of the, like some of the biggest supporters I've, I've had in various stages of my studies and, you know, even within organizations have often been, you know, brothers who are awake to these issues, right? And who, who yeah. And that's, and I think that's why we, we see such a difference. I, I think we see such a major difference right now, the way that our Muslim organizations are versus when I was a kid. When I was a little girl, I, I, I saw a completely different example of what Muslim American institutions looked like and felt like versus today. And I think that was not possible without the support of the brothers also um who who helped mm -hmm. to support and encourage that change so this I get, again going back to the idea of men and women being awliya of one another being caretakers of one another every time sisters feel a supportive experience from a muslim male community member or community leader mm -hmm. that is uh, a win for our community and similarly every time brothers feel that um support from sisters is also a win but it should be both ways Right, the verse in the Quran is the believing men and believing women are awliya of one another, and yeah. um, we do need both sides to really um, take that role on of 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 being these protective, um, I want to say, supporters, uh, protectors and supporters of each other. I something as simple. I remember once I was. Um, going to masjid to pray. And the women's section of the musalla is just behind the men's section. So it's just one floor, it's an open musalla. But when I looked through the window of the door, uh, I saw that there were men sitting uh, all in the women's area of, that, of the musalla. So I didn't know where to go. And so um, I was gonna just, they have a second musalla upstairs. And rather than having the men move out of the women's area, I was just gonna go pray upstairs. There was a brother who saw that I looked in the window and I and I and who saw that the other brothers were sitting in the space that I, that was a, that was allotted for women, and he mm -hmm. came he came out. He said, "Sister, did you want to come pray here?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Wait a second. And then he went back in and he talked to the brothers and he had them all move out of the way. And then I came in and prayed. And I remember just that one gesture felt 
like I don't know the brother, I don't know his name, I don't know if I'll ever see him again, but I, I remember the gesture, I remember how it felt to be treated as his sister in Islam, you know what right. I'm saying? Oh. And um, that's the beautiful sort of conduct that we're trying to encourage um, mm. within our institutions. It's it's those gestures to to open that space up to, to that I don't have to ask that you're noticing that you're caring that you're that you recognize that there's something that's wrong here and that you will step in um, and 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 make a difference. So may Allah subhanahu wa taala help our community. I think that inshallah, as we like you said, the institutions today are doing so much better. Uh, no female teacher I know, not a single female teacher I know, was not um, has not have is not someone who can who can say they got where they got without having had very significant, important and meaningful support from Muslim male brothers and uh, brothers or leaders or scholars in their lives. So mm-hmm. we're not trying to talk about like a war of the sexes <laughs> per se mm-hmm. or a battle of the sexes, but more of like um, this idea we're, we're of doing Islam, right? We want to do Islam of of any area in our community that we feel, you know, that we're finding an imbalance in, right? Mm-hmm. And I think also teaching sisters that, you know, teaching sisters that it's okay to to push back. You know, when you see yeah. something, don't assume this is the religion. Don't assume this is the way things have to be. Don't assume when you hear something in a classroom, in the university or at home, um, you know, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you agency, gave you ability, gave you, uh, you know, if you don't understand something to ask, to search, to push, and to to work for things to become better, inshallah. Absolutely. And uh, to finish the kind of topic of um, uh, on feminism as well, I just wanted to add that, you know, one of the things I like to say to sisters is that, you know, if you look at the if you just look at the history of feminism and also the situation today with you know the feminist movement there's a huge amount of confusion especially today like as to what you know what even the very principles and the kind of uh the causes that feminism will support are you know uh, and and one of the things that we have to realize is that any ideology that is man-made or that has been formulated in the minds of fallible human beings, mm-hmm. there's always going to be, you know, at some point there's going to be problems. And especially I remember when I was researching the 60s and like the second wave of feminism, etc. cetera, um, one of the things that you'll find is that the, the whole movement against motherhood, okay, the whole movement against... Um, the concept of a, there being a maternal instinct or that children need their mothers, for example, um, that was very much instigated by the feminist movement. And, and that's just one example, right? And then years later, it was found that, you know, that had caused so much harm. You know, women had stopped breastfeeding, for example. Um, you know, children were being put into uh, daycare from from when they were babies, you know, from morning till night. And these things were having a real effect on the next generation. And then, you know, governments, like here in the UK, the government had to like do a whole campaign on, for example, breastfeeding or, you know, trying to kind of 
mm-hmm. go back and say, no, 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 actually, mm-hmm. mothers are important. You know, mm-hmm. a child, any carer is not just interchangeable for a child. Mm-hmm. You know, the mother has a special role, has a special. And so, you know, and 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 the reason why I mentioned that is because, you know, that anti-motherhood sentiment was very much a feminist cause in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And yet later on, you know, it was found that actually, you know, it, it did more harm than good. And similarly, in our times, you know, the whole kind of erasure of gender, right? Yeah. The whole kind of idea that there's no difference between men and women. Um, that was, again, well, instigated. You can just choose to identify with whatever gender you feel like that day. That's, that's, I mean, I don't know if you're... Yeah, that's where it's heading. Know, that's idea. But I mean, even even feminists today, you know, are divided, right? Like there are feminists who are very much against this whole, the kind of modern transgender thing, uh, because they say, well, this is just men encroaching onto women's, uh, you know, women's, you know, right? And 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 then on the other hand, there are others, other feminists who are saying, yeah, but there's no difference between men and women, right? And that was kind of a principle that feminism really promoted right and quite famous feminists promoted in especially in the 60s and 70s so in a kind of strange kind of way the gender confusion that has come about today was in in some way linked to the feminism of the past because yeah. when you say there's no difference between men and women mm-hmm. um, then what you do is you open the doors for this kind of, you know, confusion, right? And this- so um, One of the, it was interesting you're saying all this about that, about like how there's in every wave, there's a teaching, a practice, part of the agenda that has proven over it, like at the time everyone adopts it. And then years later, they look back and say, that was really harmful. We're gonna try to undo that, but the damage has already been yeah. done for the entire generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're gonna, we're going through this now with what, what you mentioned in terms of getting rid of the gender binary and trying to talk about gender as a spectrum. And the idea of you know, sexuality in feminism is really interesting because um, in some of the studies that talk about like when they were, again, they're literally coming up with what, like on a, on a, on a philosophical level, on a completely philosophical level, what does equal yeah, what does equality for the sexes mean? So some said that what it means is that there is no superiority in a sexual relationship between men and women, right? That was one of the thoughts that, that created. And some in, uh, you know, in terms of like academic research, what they said was that in every, um, you know, there's still superiority uh, in terms of that a woman still experiences sexual superiority because a um, a father, a woman who has a father, still has to answer to the authority of a father. Okay, and so somehow that I mean, think about that. Not only motherhood, but fatherhood itself. Now she, because she has to obey a male figure in her life, then um, then that's not then she doesn't have full um, equality. She still doesn't have full sexual equality. So in that trend, what they actually said was the only way to have full sexual equality between the male and the female is to get, I mean, forgive me because this is vulgar, but to get rid of the taboo of incest because they felt that it is only through the actual act, the sexual act, that the genders feel sexually equal. This is absurd. This is actually 
stupid, right? Like think about the like people sitting in a room trying to come up with sexual equality yeah. based on whatever. Who else is sitting in the room with them? Honestly, like right? There's this. Yeah, gosh, how were these people brought up? That's what I want to know. And so this is this is there in terms of when we talk about the genealogy of different movements and thoughts that exist. Um, I want to say different isms, different ideologies. We have to look at what was said in their conferences, what was being debated, what was discussed. <laughs> right. And today, for example, they'll talk about intersectional feminism and how you know it's a feminism that represents so many different identities. And um, there are religious feminists, there are Muslim feminists, there are Christian feminists, and um, in some ways, it's an appropriation of women's rights of that other religions already. Uh, provide and offer into an, a movement that actually is not consoled with them, you know. So um, mm. when we talk about like cultural appropriation, right? To me, the idea of Muslim feminism or quote unquote Islamic feminism is a form of appropriation. My religion already gives me all I need, right? I don't need your feminism label to be added to my God-given rights. Right. I already mm. have. As a woman, I'm happy. Like Allah gave me what I need. Thank you, Ya Allah. I want to share that with the world, right? right. I want to invite the world to understand what he has given me. And I'm in no need of another movement to somehow give me a level of authority or give me a level of um, you know, acceptance. I don't need your seal of approval, right? I, my, right. I, that, if I believe in my religion, I do not need your movement's seal of approval. Your movement needs mine. Your movement needs to look at what, what what we're doing, not the other way around. Absolutely. And also, I think it can't be kind of, we can't understate the fact that some of the feminist ideologies or beliefs can literally lead to disbelief, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so even, for example, this whole idea that as if, you know, women should be completely detached from men. Right, because that's basically what it is, you know. When we say that, I mean, when when feminists find the idea of the male being responsible for the female, you know, having that kind of role of being a protector, when they find that problematic, mm-hmm. where where is that going to end, right? Because mm-hmm. our prophets were men, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, our uh, yani the the most authoritative voice in our deen is the voice from of a human being is the voice of the Prophet right? And he was our patriarch, if you want to use that word, right? He literally um, is the male figure, the messenger of Allah, who came to give us uh, guidance and tell us how to live our lives, right? And he told us what the um, path for men and women is to Jannah. Mm-hmm. So if we are to reject you know, or if we are to adopt some of the language of feminism and we're, we're to adopt some of these ideas, right, it will literally lead us to reject some of the most fundamental parts of our being, right? Or at least be very careful, oh, you know, about how we, I want to say that there's, um, there's this need, whenever people are trying to prove themselves in a completely different paradigm, they're giving that paradigm authority over their own practice and the authority to say this is right and this is wrong within it. So what you will find is people sort of filtering their own identity, filtering their own practice of religion to fit what 
this other group is going to approve of. And we've talked about this, like, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of, as a community, we've reflected on the, the effect of colonialism in the Muslim world and the effect of post-colonialism in the Muslim world and all of, and, and this idea of needing to prove themselves and fitting in into, to the notion that we're somehow not backwards or not as, you know, the savages or as, as, the, as the colonial powers painted us out to be, the Orientalist mm -hmm. powers have presented us to be. So this, it's really coming from a very defensive and um, inferior place of, I need to prove myself to this power that is better than yeah. me, that is uh, more important than me, that is more valuable than me. Um, right. In so doing, right, you've, you, you know, people have given them more authority, more power. And, um, right. you know, it, it's like this, this, the, this whole need, this inferiority complex. Um, I want to say that, but on the other hand, I just want to add this because I think it's important. Um, mm -hmm. There are Muslim women that I've met who identify themselves as as feminists. Okay. And they say that they are Sharia-based feminist. So, and that's like a term that they use because they feel like it helps them to connect better to other women in their society, other women in the country, and to uh, cause people to broaden their scope of what they think uh, feminism can look like and all of that, right? Um, and okay. that's, that's a particular approach that exists. And I know those women, and I know those women practice their deen in a very, um, mashallah, like exemplary manner, right? It's just, it's an approach that I want to say that I would personally disagree with as, as, a, as a methodology. But I don't want to say that it is haram. Like that they mm -hmm. do so, I don't want to say is haram because there, there can possibly be space for, for, that, for that manifestation. Um, that is based in the Sharia and their, you know, this idea of la mushahata fil istilah, that's what they're basing it on. I don't think it's correct. I think it's like, if I don't think it's, it's you know, it's possible for someone to make an ijtihad and be correct. It's possible for someone to make an ijtihad and it can be incorrect. I personally don't feel it's correct. And I, I'm not, you know, a senior scholar of, of, of any sorts. Um, someone who's uh, studied in the past and a very humble level of knowledge and still trying to grow. So, um, but I want to say that we, we should recognize that that voice is also a strand within the community. And even if we don't always agree with them, um, that it doesn't mean that they don't have a valid place uh, within the discussion, uh, within the, uh, I wanna say the, the broader scope of the subject matter itself, a podcast with someone who's that view and sort of do a little bit of back and forth, not debate per se, you can do a debate. I'm, I'm actually open to debates, but the idea of being like, Let's 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 tease this out a little further. Again, I don't feel like it's the correct ijtihad at all, but I do believe it's an ijtihad that some women have taken in our times that are scholars in their own rights, um, much more senior than myself. So um, I say that just to say that it's possible to to care about this dean and about being authentic to this dean, to the practice of this dean, and still. Um, and still not necessarily agree with what I'm saying. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, I also think that um, sisters who might do that with good intentions, you know, um, I do think they should reconsider because, like I said, if you're if you're adopting the um, the label of feminism and then redefining it completely, right, mm -hmm. and adding your own definition to it. Uh, rather than what feminist thought or fe you know the feminist movement or the various feminist groups um, consider it to be, 
and have you know, defined it to be, then in a way it's not feminism anymore anyway, right? It's like no. you're, you're, you're redefining it anyway. So then why use that word? Uh, but mm -hmm. if you're not, then like you said, like you said, you're at risk of like basically scrutinizing the world through a lens uh, of a of a man-made worldview, which is literally based on trial and error. You know, yep. that's, that's literally what it is. And on a, um, on a basically, also, the feminists will never accept you. You call yourself a Sharia-based feminist, you know. Yeah. I don't know how that goes down in the meetings, you know, mm -hmm. the Sharia-based feminist. I don't know. Um, my, my, honestly, my worst interactions with um, people regarding hijab, for example, in, in, in terms of presentations about, uh, like, the women in Islam that I've done in different capacities in different places has actually been with feminists. Like, uh, it was a feminist who came to me and told me, when I see you wearing that, I, f I feel like just ripping it off your head. I've never had a single human being say that to me. It was an old white lady <laughs> at, a, at a nursing home when I was doing a presentation. And she was saying it in a polite way. Um, she was saying like, you know, she heard the presentation. She said, that's my first instinct. But then I heard you talk. And then I realized it didn't mean what I thought it meant. But the point is, is that, um, that the, the, even in interactions, like I've been in settings, I've been on panels, of, of different topics where, where feminist organizations and leaders were there. And, um, and the interaction was always like this, this condescending, we are the authority, you are the one who has to prove yourself in my space. Mm. Um, even, if, even if the space wasn't theirs to begin with, right? So right. Um, this is just one form of authoritative oppression, replacing one form of authoritative oppression with another. And um, this is it's ideological uh, colonization, right? Yeah, it absolutely. There's no, no longer like no longer physical, but mm -hmm. yeah, and so kind of like you know, we we as Muslims, as you mentioned already, we're here to um, present an alternative vision to the world, right? To people mm -hmm. for living their lives, um, not to adopt other people's visions, you know, that have literally been only been here for a few decades people formulated a trial and error based you know uh not tried and tested etc etc you know we have something superior so um yeah. to to kind of subject what is superior to what is inferior mm -hmm. uh is an act of self-harm right <laughs> absolutely yeah so inshallah i i do hope that you know our community does wake up to oppression and difficulties in all in all its forms, you know, mm -hmm. and that we realize that we do have the framework. We have the framework. We just need, um, I think, the people who are willing to uh, work through the problems, you know, the difficult problems slowly but surely. Mm -hmm. And as as women, I feel like one of the greatest things that we can do to to bring about change is to instill the right attitudes in the next generation right the mm. next generation of men and women are literally in our hands and mm -hmm. so you know that those things like chivalry those things like um you like know, positive Muslim masculinity you know this even that is because has become something taboo to talk about like this idea of a healthy masculinity that we do believe in masculinity as a concept as an ethic and because of um you know, there's a discussion around toxic masculinity. And while that is real, 
the discussion around toxic masculinity should not eliminate the idea of masculinity altogether. And that's kind of where I think things tend to happen in heavily charged social justice driven um, sort of frameworks where uh, things become all or nothing. So they won't outwardly say we don't believe in masculinity, but by the way that toxic masculinity is discussed and studied, um, you, it's, it's very hard for people to even talk about what does healthy masculinity look like. Like we had an event as the Majlis called uh, Reclaiming Masculinity, and it had like a picture of the sandal of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu like the form of it, to be like he is our example of what healthy masculinity looks like. And we had a panel of only male speakers, and we did that on purpose because we're trying to say that it's, and we had people contact us and say, why don't you have any female speakers about masculinity? And I told them, I'm like, would we want male speakers if we were talking about femininity at, a, at, a, at an event? Or would we want Muslim women who have studied to be the ones to actually represent this topic and to talk about it? But what was interesting that I noticed on this particular event is that um, of all the men who spoke, and my husband was one of them, um, that I felt that they, I felt in the event, they felt stifled to actually express themselves. When toxic masculinity is discussed, it's often it often feels like it's actually masculinity that's being that's being uh, criticized, right? And so even you know aspects of what it is to be a man that actually are things that society needs in the men, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, they don't. We don't need or we don't want to encourage the inappropriate use of those characteristics right mm -hmm. but in and of themselves those mm -hmm. characteristics such as uh, you know courage <laughs> courage mm -hmm. um the willingness to face danger uh mm -hmm. even aggression right they have a place <laughs> they, mm -hmm. they do actually have a place no, no civilization has survived without harnessing the masculinity of men and using it in a and it really shows you that, yeah, subhanAllah, that we're internalizing the, the subliminal messaging, I think, you know, from the media. Um, and and uh, there's a professor, Leonard Sachs, he, he's written a book called Why Gender Matters. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the harm that's done when, you know, when masculinity is basically erased and you know what ha what happened in classrooms is because boys and girls were or teachers were told that there's no real difference between boys and girls and no real difference between men and female boys who boys were taught in a way that was not really appropriate for their age and then labeled as being hyperactive and you know having ADHD etc cetera, etc cetera, simply because at the same age girls were able to sit still and do work and you know sit at a table etc whereas the boys their development was different and they need they had different needs mm -hmm. but because there was this one size fits all approach right that natural boisterousness or kind of the uh, active nature of the boys was being stifled suppressed almost erased right mm -hmm. They were being labeled. They were being expelled. You know, well, because was, yeah, the, mm -hmm. the a, a negative relationship and association with learning for the rest of their lives. And that's the thing that the studies right. show that like you treat the boy different at age five and six in a classroom, 
and then seven through high school, right? Unless there's a drastic change or some, some kind of meaningful event in this person's life, they actually have a negative um, response to learning and schoolwork in comparison to the female students. And how many Muslim families know of young men who are struggling in school right now, whether it's elementary, middle school, or high school? And how many of them have considered that maybe the model is what's wrong and it's not, your, it's not actually your son? Right. Uh, maybe it's the system that has privileged or worked towards the psychology uh, um, of a female and, uh, and so that's why your daughters can handle it and can do so well. And your sons who are also brilliant and smart and intelligent when they apply themselves, you see how well they do, but they struggle in school for X number of reasons. Maybe the system itself. And a long time ago, they actually had separate schools for boys and girls, right? So schools in, the and UK, in the UK, oh, the best yeah. schools and the schools that the royals, you know, the royals will send their kids to or the upper classes, like the elite schools, Mm -hmm. in the UK are still you know segregated by gender mm -hmm. and the for example you know the top school here is called Eton the one where basically the sons of and the prime ministers have all kind of come from mm -hmm. and the sons of the royals etc um, that's really interesting that, because there's yeah. studies that show that segregated by gender schooling actually does help mm -hmm. boys even more than it helps girls right and they have whole systems right for mm -hmm. bringing out the best in men and boys. And the, like that's literally, I would say, what the British Empire was built on, you know? <laughs> um, so anyway, Zakna Karen, Estada. We digress. Um, We're, you're such a wonderful person to talk to, Estada Fatima. <laughs> it's so nice. I could be here till tomorrow, just going through one after another, the different, um, especially on this particular topic, alhamdulillah. So. Yeah, so cool. alhamdulillah, I hope, I hope that we've uh, discussed it in a nuanced way, you know? Um, it's not to say there's no issues in our community, there are, but we want to approach them in the right way. We don't want to you know, make the same mistakes that the wider society has actually made and sometimes had to backtrack and actually is currently, I would say, suffering mm -hmm. as a result of, right? Jazakallah mm -hmm. uh, So, Did you ever think there's going to be a time when the label woman would ever be questioned? because we're living in that time right Allah. and i mean i was going to say that you know right that verse in the quran and the male is not like the female you know that um i just think that that's enough to help people to reflect on and uh, be proud of that be proud mm -hmm. of that difference right mm -hmm. that distinctness is what makes us special mm -hmm. the fact that our deen doesn't want us to be independent now when i say that i mean it doesn't want to separate us and tear us away from the men in our lives right mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. wants men to keep an eye on women and it wants men to uh, protect us and to mm -hmm. be in our business if you like you know in a in a positive way right mm -hmm. and that's actually for our own benefit because when societies that have literally ripped you know, mm -hmm fathers away from daughters mm -hmm. and given that messaging that you know actually when you get to a certain age nobody else has any kind of responsibility over you or responsibility to take care of you or think about you look what's happened you know in those societies look look at the kind of the suffering of women and girls you mm -hmm. know um, we look even into the 
the history of our religion in terms of every great and strong female figure had a strong uh, male figure as support as well. Of course, they had a relationship with Allah, but like the, the you know, Maryam alayhi salam, right? Like the Prophet Zakariya is someone who uh, helped in her, in her caregiving and in raising her. Um, when you think about Aisha radiallahu like she came into, she is this um, strong figure in Islamic history, but she was, you know, the wife of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu who it was her, while he was alive, he was the one who supported her. And, and I want to say, um, uh, I nurtured her strength, not took away from mm -hmm. it, right? Um, if you look at other strong women in our history, the Sahabiyat, like you find that there are in any actually uh, major female scholar that I've um, studied that her life, I have found a, uh, a, a, a supportive uh, male figure and an important uh, uh, and usually a father type, a father type figure. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that behind every strong man or behind every great man is a great woman. Well, behind every great woman is also a great man. Um, it was often. Yeah. I want to say a very great man and mm -hmm. um for for female teachers and scholars uh they know who they're who who helped them get where they are you know um and, right. they, and even even if they aren't even women who are not in the public eye or who are not mm -hmm. prominent you know in that kind of way mm -hmm. every woman that i know who excels and who thrives you know whether it's as a mother or as a teacher, or you know, in their own community, etc. Um, you know, they have that kind of bedrock of mm -hmm. usually fatherly support um, yes. or mentors. You know, uh, male mentors, male figures in their life who who really um, have meant something to them um, mm -hmm. and encouraged them. May Allah bless them. Alhamdulillah. Father, um, is, is there any kind of last message that you'd like to give to our brothers and sisters out there uh, related to what we've spoken about today? I think um, I think I would say to our brothers and sisters that we don't, as a community, suffer from just Islamophobia in the greater context of whatever uh, maybe non-Muslim society that we live in. But um, I think that there is also Islamophobia within our community. Uh, I think that a lot of young people, because of difficult life experiences, maybe practices or teachings that were they were raised with, or even masajid they went to where they had negative experiences or heard things that 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 harmed them in some way, they're almost afraid to study the religion because of what their past experience has been with it, and. Mm -hmm. um, what I want to say is that, that that fear of studying Islam and fear of finding out what God wants and fear of like just growing in the knowledge of faith, that uh, that's an internal Islamophobia that we can only overcome if we have a, start off with a really good opinion of Allah. That the God, that the one Allah, the only, the only God that exists who created the whole world and everything in it, that he is good, that he is perfect, and that he does not want to harm his creation. He does not want to hurt his creation and he does not want to legislate that which would be harmful or oppressive or painful. He has no reason um, as the creator of all that exists to, to seek to have a gender hurt or harmed over another gender or a race hurt or harmed over another race 
or uh, an economic class hurt or harmed over another economic class, those harms and hurts that exist in the Muslim community and sometimes are justified in the language of, of religion cannot be ascribed to God. And we can't truly know what God wants um, in a way that like fills our souls with that contentment unless we go and we study his religion with a heart that's not full of fear, but one that's full of, God, I just want to know what you want from us, you know, like submission and peaceful surrender. And again, a good opinion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only wants what's best for all of us. He only wants what's best for every single one of his creation down to the tiniest ant on this earth. And um, that is who Allah is. And if we look at his beautiful names, his 99 names um, and his attributes, if we, if we connect to him uh, in a positive way, and in a way that we we put aside if we can and i know that a lot of people have been traumatized but we try to put aside that trauma and say the answer to my trauma the healing to my trauma is learning this religion um and i want to say to find sources of learning that are going to be authentic and that are going to be nuanced and the higher you go up in scholarship the better it will be so learning from someone who has only studied one year is not the same as learning at the foot of a very senior elderly scholar mm -hmm. um, who has a specialization in the topic. And, um, you know, if anyone needs help finding the right resources to learn from, there's a lot of online programs right now in the world. And there's a lot of individuals who are accessible for help and for navigating particular issues that may be getting in the way of your own religious growth and spiritual growth and also learning. So uh, my message is to not approach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with Islamophobia, <laughs> but to approach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with a love for him and a love for what he would decree in the world for us as a way of life. Jazakallah khairan, Ustada. I really appreciate your advice. Uh, and inshallah, with that, I'm going to wrap up this uh, podcast episode. Jazakallah uh, khairan. Dear brothers and sisters, um, please do share this video with others, you know, share this uh, podcast episode and leave a comment. Let us know, you know, was there something that you heard that really stood out for you? Is there something that uh, maybe you have a question about? Do share those questions and comments, um, you know, under this video, inshallah. And you can listen to this video, you can listen to this podcast episode as an audio wherever you access your podcast. So there are multiple ways for you to continue to enjoy the Home Feed podcast. Uh, inshallah, with that, I'm going to end. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum, Ustada. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you so much.